Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got a great show lined up for you. I'm actually very excited about it because it's something that people throughout Indian country can relate to. And even if you don't have Native American roots, I think you're really going to be engaged by this program today. As I travel across North America, as I interface with people, First Nation peoples continually talking about a creator, uh, meetings, whether you've been in a tribal gathering, whether you're at a scientific assembly, as I often am with Native American researchers, prayer uh, begins that session. And yet at the same time, we're living in a culture that often wants to dismiss the spiritual, often uh, wants to relegate discussions of a creator or design in nature uh, to something that's antiquated, that isn't relevant today. We're going to look at this subject in detail today, origins, science of beginnings. I've got someone expertly qualified to speak with us on this topic. It's Dr. Stephen Meyer. Steve, it's great to have you with us on today's show. It's awfully nice of you to have me on. Steve, I know a lot of people know your name. Uh, You haven't been doing your work uh, under a bushel, so to speak. You're getting the word out about your science. But you head up a group uh, called the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Tell us just a little bit uh, what that is. Yeah, you bet. It's a network of scientists and scholars who are challenging a particular worldview that is very dominant in our elite culture today, in the, in the law schools, the courts, and especially in the universities and the science laboratories. And the worldview is called materialism or naturalism, or sometimes it's called scientific materialism. It's the idea that thing from which everything else comes is matter and energy, and that everything has arisen through unguided, undirected material processes without any guidance or design from a creator or intelligent agent of any kind, and uh, allegedly supported by science, thus the name scientific materialism. But we're challenging that notion because of a suite of recent discoveries in science, actually stretching back now um, uh, almost a century. But uh, through most of the 20th century, there have been major discoveries in physics, cosmology, and especially biology that have challenged this picture of the world yet the word isn't getting out enough. We still have groups like the New Atheists who are claiming that science properly understood undermines faith in God or a creator of any kind. And we're, we're a network of scholars and scientists who are dis- disputing that, that claim. Now, when people look at credentials, which is you know, very significant in our culture, uh, you're someone who actually has training from some of the most prestigious universities in the world. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, I actually started out at a small liberal arts college in uh, Washington State here called Whitworth, which is now called uh, Whitworth University, but it was a small liberal arts school. I went in, I, I double majored in physics and geology with uh, taking a lot of philosophy classes as well and ended up in my first few years in industry working as a scientist as a geophysicist for a major oil company. And uh, in 1985, when I was still a pretty young scientist, conference came to the city where I was working that was investigating some of the really big questions that lie at the intersection between science and, uh, and philosophy or science and faith, the questions about the origin of the universe and the origin of life, 
and, and the, the nature of human consciousness, which is also a big mystery. And uh, I attended this conference almost by accident and found it absolutely fascinating. I met one of the, the scientists who'd been on the panel about the mysterious event known as the origin of life, the very first life. And he'd written a book called The Mystery of Life's Origin. And we got to know each other, and I learned more about the debate. It turned out that, the, that many scientists were becoming at that time and are even, becoming even more now skeptical about the idea that you can, that an undirected set of chemical reactions could produce the first living cell with all the code that's stored in the DNA molecule. And I became fascinated with that, uh, that mystery and went off to graduate school a year later to England to, uh, to study more about it as part of a program in the philosophy of science where I studied it at Cambridge University. And uh, I found that in the years since, I've never grown bored with this topic. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, it's a fascinating topic, too, in Indian country because a lot of people want to relegate this uh, discussion of a creator or any kind of design in nature to something that is uh, only fit for the uninformed. And yet what your group is saying is, to my listeners, those that come from a traditional background and speak of a creator, see design in nature, see the hand of something uh, beyond just uh, a chance— that really you're saying there's scientific evidence that supports that type of view. Am I hearing the, the message? Absolutely, and in fact, extensive scientific evidence. I think for a very long time, I, I mean, throughout most of human history, most people, most cultures have understood or perceived that there's something behind the order and the, the design and the intricate structures we see, especially in the living world, but in nature generally. That's been a widely held intuition. But in the 19th century, with the rise of a number of theories, but especially Charles Darwin's, the idea um, came into currency, especially in elite scientific culture, that the appearance of design that we see in living organisms, whether we're talking about the, uh, the structure of the vertebrate heart or uh, the, the, the beautiful structure we might see in a coiled nautilus or the, the eye, or there are many things that triggered that um, awareness of design, um, starting with Darwin, though, there was the idea that the, 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 the appearance of design we see in nature is just an appearance, and it's an illusion. And, it, and the thing that allowed the Darwinists to assert that was they believed they had discovered a mechanism, namely natural selection, acting on random mutations, that could produce that appearance of design, that illusion of design, without the mechanism being guided or directed in any way. They thought that natural selection could mimic the powers of an actual designing intelligence without itself being intelligent. And that became a kind of dominant viewpoint. Richard Dawkins, the very famous uh, Oxford biologist who's one of the leading new atheists, in one of his books called The Blind Watchmaker, has said that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance or illusion of having been designed for a purpose. And that's the view that I and my colleagues are challenging that was a view that we think was tenable in the late 19th century, but now with the discovery, for example, of little tiny miniature machines inside even the simplest cells, or even more tellingly, the digital code that's stored in the DNA molecule that is responsible for building the, those little miniature machines and the proteins out of which they're made, we think that these discoveries in modern biology are showing a, an integrated and informational complexity it points decisively to a designing intelligence or mind rather than an undirected process. 
Well, Steve, let's just kind of back up a little bit because we want to look at some of these uh, lines of evidence. I come from uh, probably a similar background as you in the sense that I went to a liberal arts college that was, you know, steeped in this evolutionary worldview, the scientific materialism. That was the only world that I knew. And there were things that happened in my life that got me to take a second look at this. But I find a lot of people, I'm sure many of those tuning into the show right now are saying, what are these guys talking about? Can you give us some concrete examples of reasons why we're saying that, you know, simple Darwinian evolution, at least from my understanding, even the espousers of evolution today would say that Darwin didn't have it right. So you talk about neo-Darwinism and other terms where uh, they say, you know, you can't just take Darwin at face value even. Am, am I understanding that right? Well, that's right. It was one of the themes of my most recent book, Darwin's Doubt, is that even leading evolutionary biologists are now calling for a new theory of evolution because they know that the mutation natural selection mechanism does not have the creative power to generate striking innovations in the history of life, the the big new changes that we see arising very abruptly from time to time in the fossil record. The natural selection mechanism does a good job of explaining very small-scale variations within a species or or small groups of organisms. Good examples are the ones you find in textbooks like the finches in the Galapagos Islands Mm -hmm. where the beaks uh, get a little bigger or a little smaller or change shapes slightly from generation to generation in response to changing weather patterns. But the natural selection mechanism doesn't seem to do a good job of explaining the large-scale changes, where birds come from in the first place or where the first animals came from, or certainly not the origin of the very first life from, uh, from non-living chemicals. And so the, these really big and more important questions in the history of life or in, in, in biology are not being answered by the standard Darwinian mechanism. So you have even leading evolutionary theorists saying it's time for a new theory. We need a new theory, and and there are a number of different contenders that have been proposed, several of which I discussed at length in my my book. But into that mix, we've uh, we've offered another theory, which is the theory of intelligent design, which we think is based not only on what we've discovered about life, uh, in in particular, its information-bearing properties, the, the DNA molecule, which is so crucial because it provides instructions for building all the crucial proteins and protein machines and structures inside cells, that DNA molecule literally contains information in an alphabetic or digital form. And what we know from experience is that information always arises from conscious activity or from an intelligent source. Hmm. And so the discovery of that information is really, we think, decisive evidence that a designing mind did play a role in the history of life and that the undirected, unguided mechanism of natural selection is simply not adequate to the task. Well, help me out, because you're an expert on this field, and I just have had a great interest in it over the years. The discoverers of DNA, Watson and Crick, I understood, you can correct me if if this is not uh, true, that one of those two uh, Nobel laureates actually felt that DNA, among other things, was so complex that he had to invoke some other explanations for how it got here other than just happening by chance. Is that true? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, Thumbnail on this is, of course, 1953, Watson and Crick elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule. They figure out how it's put together, and they suspect at that time that the structure of DNA lends itself to the storage of information in a digital form. 
1957, Crick gets even bolder and proposes something known as the sequence hypothesis, in which he points out that the, on the inside of the DNA molecule, there are four chemical subunits that are arranged differently up and down the molecule to convey instructions for building all the proteins and protein machines. So he explains that those chemical subunits, which are called bases or nucleotide bases by the chemist, are functioning just like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in the machine code. And that's kind of a mind-blowing discovery if you stop and think about it, that there's literally code inside a molecule that is, is directing the construction of all these important uh, cellular structures. So that that's the late 1950s. Throughout the 60s and 70s, people are kind of digesting this. At first, people think, well, maybe this will help us explain how different organisms evolve because it suggests a means by which mutations might accumulate. They would be, they ha are now considered to be random changes in the arrangement of those chemical letters in the DNA molecule. The problem is that if you have any kind of system that has a lot of information in it, if you start making random changes to the arrangement of the characters, you're going to degrade the information, not uh, enhance it. Hmm. And so this has been a big problem, and it's also very hard to think how you could get all that information arising out of a prebiotic soup of chemicals just knocking into each other. So Crick, in 1980, wrote a little book called Life Itself, in which he actually proposed that life was seeded here on Earth by some intelligent alien from space, or some kind of intelligence. He didn't exactly specify what it was. And he said that the conditions on life were, uh, on Earth were not conducive to a chemical evolutionary origin for life. He said the conditions would have to be nearly miraculous for that to happen. So instead he invoked uh, some kind of intelligence from somewhere else in the cosmos, out in space. He got ridiculed for that proposal by his colleagues so much that he then um, uh, said that he would never propose any more ideas about the origin of life. The problem was just too hard, and he, uh, he, he kind of backed off from his original proposal. It was called Directed Panspermia, Life from Outer Space. But uh, there it was. He, he certainly underscored just how difficult it is to explain how you can get all that digital information arising from a series of, of mindless, undirected chemical interactions. Well, Steve, we have to step away just for a couple of minutes. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Meyer, director of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. More exciting information, life-changing information for your kids, for the communities. We've got educational implications in what we're talking about. That's all coming up as we continue on American Indian Living. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and my guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Stephen Meyer's got his uh, Ph.D. in the philosophy of science from University of Cambridge. And uh, Stephen is now heading up the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. Steve, we've been talking about some things. Some of the listeners I know are really excited about what we're talking about. Others maybe have been raising their eyebrows about where we're going. Maybe we should just step back a little bit and talk about this whole dialogue. Let me ask you this question. There are many of my listeners that come from a Christian worldview. They read the Bible. They say, this is making it very clear there's a creator who created this planet, or at least life on this planet, in the relatively recent past. Most of us, you and I included, grew up, uh, I, I had toys as a little kid, dinosaur toys that had... Oh, I had lots of dinosaurs. Yeah, toys. and they had, they had on the bottom of those dinosaurs, you know, however many millions of years they were felt to, to roam this earth, or hundreds, what, I think it was millions back then. Uh, I don't remember the figures, but it was a long, long time. Does intelligent design tell us anything about the time frame? Does it say thousands of years, millions of years? Can you help us with that question? It's not really the issue of, uh, it's not really our issue. We're not really engaging the question of how old the Earth is. Uh, Many of the scientists in the ID movement accept that it is quite old, but there are others who think it's young. So that's the, the issue that we're engaging is really the question
that, that those very striking appearances of design are real, that natural selection and random mutation have not explained the origin of systems like that, but instead what we know from our experience, from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning, is that information in particular always arises from an intelligent source, whether we're talking about the information in, the, in, in software code, in computer code, or in a book, or in a, um, a radio signal, or in a, a hieroglyphic inscription. We know that whenever we find information and we trace it back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind, to a conscious agent, a thinking agent. And therefore, when we find information at the foundation of life, we think the most rational thing to conclude, based on our knowledge of cause and effect in the world around us, is that life, too, has an intelligent source, had, a, had an intelligent designer behind it. So that, that's the case we're making. We're not concerned about the age question, which is, I know, very contentious among many people, especially in religious circles. Well, I, I mean, appreciate that perspective because, of course, people from different worldviews, different, uh, whether it's spiritual, whether it's tribal, different cultures, of course, they're going to want to weigh in differently. But you're saying we're here just to say that there's a, a big movement out here, and, and I want you to give us a little perspective on this because I've seen some things out of the Discovery Institute where you've actually looked at some of what's happening in the schools. One of the statements maybe you can give us some background on because when we speak about this debate, at least in the public school system, uh, I've heard a phrase, over after Dover. And uh, maybe you can tell us where that comes from and why people in public school circles when they talk about creation science or intelligent design, this phrase sometimes comes up. It's it's all over after Dover. What what does that mean? Well, this refers to a court trial that occurred about ten years ago. Now it was the, actually the ten year anniversary of the decision was back in December of 2015. The decision was in December of 2005. It was a, a decision that was made by a, a judge Jones in a, um, a district court in Pennsylvania school district there had proposed informing students that the school library contained a book discussing the theory of intelligent design, and the board wanted the teachers to be required to tell the, the students of the existence of this book when they started their units on evolution. We thought it was a somewhat benighted policy, even though we're, the, we're very much involved in advocating for intelligent design. The problem was it's really never a good idea to compel a teacher to do something like that. Hmm. And the people who proposed the theory at the school board level were also doing so on the basis of an explicitly religious motivation. One of the board members actually on the record said that they encouraged his fellow board members to vote for the, for the policy uh, for the crucified one. And there's no court in America that's going to uphold an explicitly religiously motivated policy like that. So we had been asked to participate in the trial to defend the, the policy because we are proponents of intelligent design, but we thought it was a bad idea for a number of reasons. Uh, we were opposed to mandating that the teachers do things. We saw that the means by which the theory was being justified was, A, not scientific, and, B, constitutionally um, problematic. And beyond that, we were concerned that our, our work on intelligent design was to be politicized in that way that a number of the scientists who were at the forefront of working on the theory of intelligent design in, in mainstream universities would encounter persecution in their settings, which mm -hmm. in several cases did in fact happen. Nevertheless, the um, 
despite the court's ruling against the school board, uh, we've had a really a very good decade. There have been a spate of new books, new articles. In 2005, at the time of the trial, the, the, uh, the judge claimed there were no peer-reviewed scientific articles supporting intelligent design. That was at the time false. Uh, I had written one myself in 2004, which caused another controversy at the Smithsonian Institution. But since that time, we have nearly 100 uh, peer-reviewed books and articles advancing the theory now. And uh, it's, a, it's a growing movement, and it's anything but over. And, of course, it's ironic to think that a federal judge would attempt to settle an important philosophical and scientific question like uh, what caused life on Earth to originate. That's really above the pay grade mm-hmm. of a judge <laughs> and not within his legal <laughs> purview. So um, the, the issue was by no means settled by this court about a, a case in the little district in Pennsylvania. You know, what's so interesting about the dialogue to me is I didn't realize who was in the CC list of the email that was sent me uh, confirming the fact that you could join me on the show. And here I see the name of Michael Behe. Now, uh, for some of my listeners, that may be a familiar name. Just tell you about my reaction to seeing his name right now. I, I didn't realize it until we're interviewing. But Michael's work really got my attention some years ago as a physician and scientist. I'm a published uh, medical uh, author. I read his book. It came out probably, what, 20 years, 20, 30 years ago? This year is the 20th anniversary of the publication of his great uh, Darwin's Black Box. Yeah, amazing book. And that really, uh, this was stuff I didn't get in medical school. I mean, we learned about these uh, you know, the blood clotting system. We learned about these different things, you know, the cilia. We studied those, but I didn't really think of the implications as far as whether there was a designer or whether things just happened by chance. And Behe just made that so clear. Can you bring some of our listeners up to speed on what Behe's burden was in that book? And first of all, what was Michael's background? Well, Michael is a biochemistry professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. He has dozens of peer-reviewed articles to his credit, quite an accomplished scientist. And in 1996, he published this book, Darwin's Black Box, that really took the the world by storm. It it was the first major work on intelligent design, I think, in, in modern history, where a really extensive positive case was made. And what he did in the book was he, he examined in chapter after chapter the miniature machines and circuits that we find inside living cells. And he argued that these systems are not the kind of thing that can be explained readily or at all, really, by uh, the gradual outworking of the mutation natural selection process. One particular machine he made famous is uh, called the bacterial flagellar motor. It's a little rotary engine made of about... Uh, 30 or so protein parts. It has a rotor, a stator, O-rings, bushings, a drive shaft, a long whip-like tail that functions like a propeller, and this uh, little flagellar motor moves the the bacterium through water, uh, through liquid medium, helps and it's hardwired into something called a signal transduction circuit that uh, enables the bacterium to sense where greater concentrations of sugar are. So it's a little motor that allows a one-celled organism to motor around and find its food. And it's an extraordinary piece of high technology in a very low form of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Behe points out that systems like that pose a problem for Darwinism because 
for the motor to work at all, it requires a, a suite of parts all working in close coordination. Absent any one of those key parts, then the, the system doesn't work. So on the Darwinian idea, you explain a complex system as a result of a gradual accumulation of mutations step by step by step, where each new innovation is preserved because it confers a functional advantage. But Behe points out there's no functional advantage in these irreducibly complex molecular machines and circuits until all the parts are present. Amazing. So the intermediate stages are just not viable. They wouldn't have existed. They wouldn't have been preserved and passed on to the next generation. And, and so it really undercuts the idea that mutation and natural selection can explain everything we see in life. And instead he says, hey, look, these things look designed, but the designer's substitute mechanism doesn't explain them. A better explanation is that they actually were designed by an intelligent mm -hmm. agent. Great stuff, Steve. We have to step away again. Stephen Meyer, Dr. Stephen Meyer, a lot of great information, things that can make a difference, whether it's in your community, in your home, uh, tribal level, national level, great dialogue, great information. Got more coming up. Don't go away. We will be right back. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call one 800 775 hope that's 1-800-775-4673 so you want to be a hero here are some ways to get the job hunt down that killer shark or run into a burning house to save a kitten luckily there's an easier way to become a hero call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking walking or seeing stroke know the signs act in time you'll be a real hero a message from the national institute of neurological disorders and stroke can you guess what's going on here it's kids getting fit studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity heart disease anxiety and increase their overall mood so whether it's around your neighborhood or at school just get out and play for your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with the second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking about a topic that has been 
gathering lots, lots of dialogue across the spectrum, whether you're here in North America listening to the show or whether you're one of our listeners who tune into podcasts from elsewhere in the world. Oh, it's not just a issue in Indian country, but this whole discussion about is there evidence for a creator? I am so glad for people like uh, Dr. Steve Meyer and the Discovery Institute saying there is some real science that supports these traditional Native American worldviews or traditional Christian worldviews or worldviews that seem to really pervade the planet. Steve, we were talking about Michael Behe and his concepts of uh, what has been called irreducible complexity, but you've got a whole book out there that uh, is dealing with some of these uh, subjects. Tell us a little bit about Darwin's Doubt. Well, Darwin's Doubt was published in 2013. We released an updated version in 14, responding to a number of the critics of the first edition. It was a lot of fun. And Darwin's Doubt tells the story of an event in the history of life known as the Cambrian Explosion. And the Cambrian Explosion is refers to the corrupt appearance of the first animals in the fossil record. And contrary to what Darwin expected, these animals appeared very suddenly, geologically speaking, without evidence of a trail of ancestors going back into the deeper Precambrian sedimentary layers. And uh, Darwin himself was very puzzled by this and expressed his uh, doubt, not about whether or not he got the theory right, went to probably his death thinking that he had the overall picture right, but he certainly doubted whether or not he had adequately explained this mysterious abrupt appearance of the animal form. And in the book, what I do is I tell the story of that doubt, the doubt that Darwin had about the adequacy of his own theory, and how that doubt has grown up to now become a major crisis to really illustrate the major crisis in evolutionary theory, because in addition to the problem of the missing ancestral fossils, the gaps in the fossil record, if you will. The Cambrian explosion underscores another big problem, which is essentially an engineering problem. How would the mutation natural selection mechanism have built these complex animal forms, especially given that they arise so suddenly? And especially now that we know that you can't build anything in life, the evolutionary process couldn't build anything in life without a lot of new biological information stored in DNA and other places as well within the living organism. So the Cambrian explosion was not just an explosion of new forms of life, it was an explosion of information, an information explosion, if you will, and that underscores the really the deepest mystery in biology. Where does all that code come from? And uh, I argue in the book that uh, the best explanation for that is not a, Dar a Darwinian or neo-Darwinian mechanism, but rather instead intelligent design. So let's see if we can make this understandable for some who haven't heard these terms before, but if I were out drilling through the rock strata, I'd be going through different layers that the conventional evolutionary explanation is that those layers were laid down over you know, thousands and millions of years. And as we go through these different layers, you know, the people have heard of the Jurassic layers with the dinosaurs, but we get far down and we come down to this Cambrian layer, and then below that is what's called the Precambrian. The Precambrian basically has, my understanding right, no real complex life forms. Is that safe to say? Uh, well, th there are a few simpler forms of animal life, uh, sponges, which have on the order of six to ten types of cells, um, and a couple of other forms, uh, uh, 
cnidarians, which include in our modern times things like jellyfish. And, uh, but when you get to the Cambrian, you get an explosion of most of the major animal um, body plans that have ever existed on Earth, not quite all, but most, and much more complex animal forms. So it's a big uh, jump in the complexity that we see in the, in the fossil record, in the which records the history of life. First fishes we now know appear in the Cambrian, the arthropods, which uh, in modern, uh, in our modern times, an example of an arthropod would be a, an insect with a hard exoskeleton. One of the most famous arthropods from that era was the iconic trilobite fossils mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. see, and they first arise in the Cambrian. So it's it's a big explosion uh, of new animal body plans and architectures none of which have a discernible connection to the animals in the lower uh, Precambrian strata. And so this is um, really, really quite dramatic, and it was something that troubled Darwin. He knew that his theory didn't explain this. It was contrary to what he expected to see in the fossil record based on his ideas about how the natural selection mechanism would work in a very slow, steady, gradual way. And uh, it's, a, it's a mystery that, I argue, in the book has only become more acute as we've had more discoveries in paleontology and especially more discoveries about what makes life tick on the inside. So, Dr. Meyer, how does someone who would espouse intelligent design find that more compelling an explanation for this big leap in life forms? Well, as I mentioned, the, the Cambrian explosion is not just an explosion of new forms of life. It's an explosion of a great amount of information, the information necessary to build these forms of life. And what we know from our experience, uh, from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning, is that information arises from an intelligent source. And um, in the book, I look at the, the different types of information. We used to just think that information was embedded in DNA, but we now know that there's information is stored in other uh, parts of organisms as well. It's now, uh, the scientists refer to this as epigenetic information, information beyond the genome. And so in the book I show why the Darwinian mechanism can't build or generate either the, the digital information in DNA or this higher order epigenetic information or structural information required to build organisms. And yet I argue that, again, we know from experience a cause that is sufficient to produce information, that's intelligence, and we also know of a cause that's sufficient to produce um, hierarchically layered forms of information. We do that in our own high-tech digital computing world, and the cell manifests both. It has digital information in DNA, complex information processing systems, and hierarchically organized information control systems, all of these things are hallmarks of design systems. When we look at design systems that have these features or we look at systems that have these features, we know that invariably they arose from intelligent engineering or design. This is all fascinating stuff, and I know that there are practical implications to it, whether a tribe is involved with a school. I know on this very show, uh, American Indian Living, we have featured uh, Native educational institutions. Some of them are dealing with these uh, very real concerns. Does your group, the Discovery Institute, do you take a position 
on what schools should be doing. Oh, we do, yes. We're not at this point still pressing our theory of intelligent design into public schools. We're perfectly happy to allow uh, private schools to teach it, and we've provided various curricular aids to do that. We don't want the court battles. We think it's counterproductive to what we're trying to do in science. But we also think that students should be free to ask about it. Teachers should be free to respond and tell students about the theory if, if they are asked. But the thing that we're really emphasizing is the need to teach uh, the, the standard Darwinian theory in a much more responsible way. The peer-reviewed biological literature and the scientific literature is full of various problems with neo-Darwinian theory, scientific evidential challenges of various kinds. In my book, Darwin's Doubt, I look at four different evidential problems that are now being posed to the adequacy the creative power of the Darwinian mechanism. And these are problems that are discussed openly in the peer-reviewed biological literature, the technical literature. And we think science students should be allowed to know about those. That's just a matter of science literacy. So we want teachers to have the freedom to talk about the arguments for Darwinian evolution, but also the arguments against it, and to be and for students to know about what's actually going on in biology instead of being given an ideological presentation of the theory that whitewashes the difficulties with it. So people who are listening to this show and they're saying, this is interesting, but I don't understand a lot of this. I haven't delved into it like a couple of doctors, uh, you and I, who are dialoguing here. You've got a lot of stuff that you've put together that really makes this understandable, even animated uh, projects. Is this uh, is this correct? Oh, absolutely. Well, on my website, darwinsdoubt.com, we've got a lot of animations. and I've been talking in the previous segments of the interview about these little molecular machines and about the information bearing properties of DNA, how that information is processed in the cell. We've got little animations that show very nice 3D animations that show these processes. On the website, there are lots of debates and longer lectures explain this in more detail. But also we've produced a number of textbooks and supplementary texts, one called Explore Evolution. I was actually speaking to a school this morning where the biology head of the biology department was using the text. It's a textbook that enables teachers to teach the arguments for and against contemporary version of Darwin's theory, which allows students to really grapple with the scientific evidence and to weigh the competing arguments themselves. It brings a kind of inquiry-based approach to science education, where students are allowed to think critically and, and decide for themselves whether they think the arguments for and against the theory are valid and sound. And so that's, a, we think, a very exciting approach to science education. Instead of just telling students what to think, we let them weigh the competing arguments. And so you can go on our website at discovery.org, too, to find a number of these materials that are helpful for school curriculum. Okay, let me see if I've got these websites down for the benefit of our listeners. Darwinsdoubt.com. That's your website, especially focusing the book, but it also has a bunch of free resources. Is that right? Exactly right. And then discovery.org is your institute's website. Exactly. And there people can find out about our curricular offerings. And in fact, at darwinsdoubt.com, you can as well. I contributed to the book Explore Evolution, and there's information about that at my website as well. I mean, you've really got me excited about this textbook. So Explore Evolution, 
really is doing something that we've recognized the need for in the medical community because one of the disappointments, I think, even among those educating our next generation of physicians is that we've not really trained our students well in the area of critical reasoning. It's really true. Science is not just a matter of the facts or the theory leaping off of the evidence. You know, it's not just men in white coats who figure out everything and it's all obvious. Science advances, as scientists argue and debate, about how to interpret the evidence in front of them. And not only in the area of biological origins, but in many other areas of science, there are disagreements about how to interpret the evidence. You in the medical field know that there are lots of, uh, of contested interpretations of medical data, differing opinions about how to treat various diseases, the pros and cons of different protocols and treatment regimes, and what might be the cause of different diseases. It's really important for the public and our, and our young people in particular to learn how to evaluate competing arguments, even if the arguments are being made by scientists who have more expertise in the given area. Steve, we're going to just have to step away just for a minute. We've got one more segment coming up in today's dialogue on American Indian living. You don't want to miss our final segment. Stay tuned for more. We will be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. Stephen Meyer, Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge and the director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, has been gracious enough to stay by through the conclusion of today's show. Steve, I mean, you've been given a lot of great information. I'm really excited about the topic. It's something that I've been interested in for many years, and I appreciate you bringing this uh, great material, including this uh, textbook that I'd never heard of, Explore Evolution. So a public school biology teacher could feel comfortable using this textbook in his or her classroom? There's no legal problem with telling students about the arguments for and against Darwinian theory. The arguments and evidence that are reported and discussed in the textbook are things that are found in mainstream biology journals, and we just thought students ought to know about them. It's a matter of scientific literacy. If you only teach one side of a controversial subject, then students really aren't getting the full picture of mm-hmm. the, the status of the theory in the, within the scientific world. So that's what we do in the book. Well, well give us a, maybe another illustration, because I know when we speak about evolution, the kind of worldview that talks about scientific materialism, everyone always goes back to this Big Bang, and a lot of folks, lay people, this is just a fact. Is that pretty much ironclad, or are there questions about this Big Bang theory? Uh, there are some questions around the margin, but the uh, overwhelming testimony of physics and uh, cosmology in the 20th century has been to support the idea that the universe has a definite beginning. Just an absolutely extraordinary idea. It's a scientific discovery that has larger philosophical and worldview implications. Every worldview has to answer the question, what is the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else comes? And for a long time, especially during the 19th century and into the beginning of the last century, a consensus had arisen that the universe was infinite in time and space, that it had no beginning and no end, and that the matter and energy within the universe were eternal and self-existent. Therefore, they didn't need a creator. Uh, They had always been here. Uh, And the extraordinary discovery that uh, was made in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s was that the universe does, in fact, have a beginning. This first came through the work of Edwin Hubble and a number of other astronomers and physicists at the time. I think the evidence for the idea that the universe had a beginning has gotten stronger and stronger over the last 100 years or so, almost 100 years now. And... It's really quite an extraordinary discovery and one which, as I said, is not just scientific in nature, but it does have these larger philosophical implications suggesting the need for some kind of cause beyond the material world to bring the material world into existence. Mm. That is an aspect that's often not discussed because most people, when they speak about the Big Bang, they're trying to then evoke something before that materialistically that led to it, you know, an implosion of matter or something like that. Is that very compelling to to most scientists? Well, it really isn't part of the theory. It can't be because there was a really interesting development in the discussion in the 1960s. Many of your listeners may have seen news reports about the famed Cambridge physicist, 
Stephen Hawking, who has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And when Hawking was still a Ph.D. student in the 60s, he realized that an implication of Einstein's theories about gravitation, an implication was that the universe must have had a beginning and even space itself must have come into existence, that if you go back far enough in time, that what the physicists refer to as the curvature of space would have gotten tighter and tighter and tighter as more matter was, was compressed as we went back to the beginning. And that tightly curved space eventually would correspond to zero spatial volume. The physicists call this the singularity. It was Einstein's idea that matter curved space, and there was something in the news uh, just recently about another confirmation of Einstein's ideas with the discovery of gravity waves. But if you think of like a great big ball on a trampoline and the way the ball curves the shape of the trampoline, that was something like what Einstein had in mind. And Hawking realized that because the universe is expanding outward and time going forward, that at any point in the finite past, the matter would be more and more tightly compressed until finally you get to a place where the matter was infinitely tightly compressed and space would be infinitely curved um, and therefore would correspond to zero space, zero spatial volume, in which you can put no stuff, no material. So the picture of the universe you get from this uh, development in physics is one which is kind of remarkably similar to what theologians used to talk about when they talked about creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing physical. Hmm. There was no matter in the beginning to invoke as the cause of the universe Matter and energy, time and space all come into existence at that singular point, and it seems to suggest the need for a cause that transcends matter, space, time, and energy, something that is not bound by time, not material, and also tremendously powerful. So it's not without cause that many philosophers and scientists have realized that this new theory of the origin of the universe may in fact have theistic implications. It seems to point to the need for something, for a cause which has the attributes that uh, religious people have always ascribed to God. Well, this is amazing stuff. How do you find this plays out when you talk in a venue, maybe where people have not heard any of these ideas before? Do people get angry? Are people pretty receptive? I know it's hard to generalize. Well, it can run the gamut. Some people are very angry, and others are intrigued and fascinated because they haven't heard them before. And people have always assumed that science is a foe to faith, that it undermines any belief in God. And yet, as we've been talking today, uh, we've been talking about a number of discoveries that have faith-friendly implications. They're not based on a reading of the Bible or of the traditions of a church or something like that. These are discoveries that are being made in science that have implications that support faith, and uh, and I think that's a very fascinating thing. Many people are more open to considering faith when they realize that there are facts that support belief in the existence of God. And three big discoveries of the, of the 20th century, I think, do support that. One is that the universe had a beginning. Secondly, the physicists tell us that the universe was finely tuned from the beginning to allow for the possibility of life. The basic laws of physics have very precise, uh, a very precise structure and that allows life to exist. And then finally, we see that after the beginning of the universe, there have been episodes on our planet in which new forms of life arise, in each case manifesting big infusions of new biological information, something, again, uh, we know that is to 
say information is something that we know arises from an intelligent source. So we have evidence of a beginning, evidence of design from the beginning, and evidence of, de of a designer acting at periodic intervals after the beginning. That, to me, I think is best explained by the hypothesis of God, not just a designer, but a, a, a designer that has the attributes that uh, religious folk have always ascribed to God. Wow, this is uh, provocative stuff. Unfortunately, the clock is going to win again, but we want to make sure, Steve, that before we finish, we give out some information on ways people can learn more. Earlier in the show, we did mention your book, Darwin's Doubt. Tell us how we can either get a copy of the book or other resources that you've put together. The website is a, probably the best uh, port of call, darwinsdoubt.com. It has lots of animations, debates, videos, lectures, and a lot of information about the book, including uh, the online sources where you can go to get it if you're so inclined. Wonderful. So darwinsdoubt.com, that'll really put us in touch with uh, basically everything we need. Yeah, all the, uh, kind of all the things we've been talking about are archived there in one way or another. Great. And then if people want to learn more about the Discovery Institute and some of the work you do, you've got another website for your institute, right? Discovery.org, right. And we have a, a membership society and a, an annual conference for our members, so if people want to come to our conferences, that's a, that's a, a fun thing to do and a, a great way to get involved on, a, on an entry-level <laughs> basis, if you will. Great. When do you have that conference? It's usually in August in Seattle, which is actually a very nice place to come in, in August when it's often too hot in other parts of the country. So. Okay, good deal. So discovery.org, we can learn more about your institute, meetings, resources that you've got. Absolutely. Well, Steve, uh, our time is just about gone. Any final summary statements uh, to encourage our listeners with? Well, I think it, it really it's a great time to be investigating these questions. There's so much that we know now that we didn't know 100 years ago. The scientists have been able to open up the interior workings of the cell and look deep into space. And the more we learn, I think the more evidence there is of, a, of, of purpose and intelligence behind everything we see. And I think that's kind of an exciting conclusion after such a long time when people thought that science was telling us that everything was meaningless. Tremendous. Dr. Stephen Meyer, director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. Hopefully today has helped you connect better with your native roots, with your uh, spiritual foundations, or has awakened some new questions. Listen, as always, our purpose is to help you have the very best of health spiritually, mentally, physically. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.